and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Paul Dickinson. And I'm Cristiana Figueres. And sadly this week, we have no Tom Rivet-Karnak. But this week, we are having a deep dive episode looking into the future of food. Thanks for being here. So, Christiana, what's going on? Yeah, so this week, maybe because Tom is not here, we are doing our next episode in our series on the future of food. We're going to be taking, as Paul has already mentioned, a deep dive into the current food crisis that I'm sure everyone is aware of, the crisis that is currently playing out across all global regions accelerated by Putin's invasion on Ukraine, but not started there, but rather just accelerated and exacerbated. We will explore, with the help of four brilliant guest contributors, the reasons why we're facing such an acute crisis. We are going to try to answer a very key question. Is the food system crisis a crisis of economics, or is it a crisis of production? Now, most importantly, we will also hear how we might use this moment of crisis as an opportunity for the food system transformation. That will not catch you by surprise, since we are always in the market for opportunities to transform crises into situations that actually benefit humankind. So with a focus on agroecology, indigenous and perennial crops, and focused policy and financial support, can we build resilience by diversifying our food sources while maintaining yields and regenerating our soil? That is the crux of our conversation. Well, Christiana, what an interesting topic and actually a rather sobering and almost terrifying one. I mean, I was doing a little bit of research before the episode and do you know the World Food Programme is now saying that people suffering acute food insecurity is at 323 million and that's up a fourfold increase since 2017. And when I think of that something like that pandemic where tragically perhaps we lost 15 million people, the idea that there could be 20 times that number at risk from food insecurity, I'm starting to worry that we're kind of failing as a species somehow. I mean, it's it's really deep, this. Uh, it, it's pretty profound. I mean, you know, is there something wrong with us? Uh, did, we, did we not teach global responsibility in schools? Or is it that Gus Speth point about the fact that we've got this problem with greed, apathy and selfishness and and we need a spiritual and cultural transformation what's how did this how did this happen because I, I got a sense looking at food in isolation is like looking at explosions in ukraine in isolation it's the kind of cause of the problem but there's a much bigger story behind it all right yeah it's so inherent right it's so inherent in the system that we have built up and probably the way i think about it paul is there's two factors to this one is how can everyone get enough food? How do we produce and distribute? Because we can produce or we're not distributing. So how can we get that? And the other piece is our relationship to protein, which is adjacent to the first, but is not the same. Mm. Because we have been producing protein in the most abominably ineffective ways. 
And we certainly can look into the future to see so many other options of protein production that um, are much more effective in their use of land and their use of water. Um, and, uh, and of course, are much less negative, have much less negative impact on soils and on global emissions. So both of them actually need to be treated together. Mm. There's something about nations as being like castles. And I, I suppose there's also poverty within uh, and, and even starvation within rich nations. But I've Okay, before we go to the interviews, I've invented an idea. I've got, a, I've got a new law, Christiana. How about this? That anyone who can afford to feed themselves for the next thousand years has to give 20% of their wealth to people who can't feed themselves for the next thousand days. What do you think? Say that again. That sounds interesting. Say it again. Anyone who's got enough money to feed themselves for the next thousand years has to give 20% of their wealth to people who cannot feed themselves in the next thousand days. I'm interested in how you arrived at the numbers, but the concept is a good one. <laughs> so shall we see what our wonderful interviewees have to say about this? And what the real experts have to say. Let's do exactly that. I'm looking forward to it. And we've got a great lineup. So let's get into these interviews now. Now, as we've already discussed, addressing a crisis when you're in the middle of a crisis is difficult. But our next four guests are all determined to create space, not only to really understand the root causes of the crisis we're dealing with in food, but also shifting the way we think about our global food system. And they're going to show how we have the solutions that if implemented could drive transformative change in our food system, and make it more resilient to future economic, geopolitical and climate shocks. So the first part in solving the food system crisis in the long term is to dig behind the current headlines and understand how this crisis has been building for the last few decades. So there's no question that the invasion of Ukraine has massively exacerbated the issue. Or I suppose you could say it's exposed the issue because actually the crisis has been building now for several years and it's a really weird one on the face of it. That's George Monbiot, celebrated author, environmentalist and activist. His most recent book, Regenesis, is an investigation into the current food system crisis and a celebration of the solutions that he believes can help us to address it. There was an assumption, um, which seemed to be well-grounded, that hunger was heading for extinction. There'd been um, a pretty steady decline from the 1960s until 2014 in the levels of chronic hunger. And this was going to be one of the world's great success stories. We were going to meet that sustainable development goal of eliminating hunger by 2030. It was going to be champagne corks popping. But then, weirdly, in 2015, the trend began to turn. And what makes this weirder still was that that turning, a rise in the number of, of people who are chronically hungry, which has continued ever since, coincided with a fall in global food prices. So between 2008 and 2014, prices had been, had been high by, by recent standards. In 2014, the global food price index stood at 115 points. It then fell really sharply um, to 93 points in 2015 and stayed below 100 until 2021. But throughout that whole period, 
the number of hungry people was steadily, slowly but steadily rising. And then it shot up with the pandemic and it's going to shoot up a lot further as a result of the crisis in Ukraine. And this defies everything that economists believe to be true about the world. Price goes down, yet more people go hungry. So what's going on? What seems to be happening, the the global food system looks very much like the global financial system in the approach to 2008. And like the financial system, it seems to be losing its resilience. Now, global food, like global finance, and indeed like almost all the things important to us, is a complex system. And like all complex systems, it will absorb stress up to a certain point and its self-regulatory properties will damp down that stress and maintain a state of equilibrium. But if that stress becomes too great, those self-regulating properties turn against it and they amplify shocks through the system. This is very much what we saw in the approach to the 2008 financial crisis, where relatively small perturbations became very big perturbations. And we saw great sort of fluxes in equity values and the rest of it. And then suddenly Northern Rock went down and then Lehman Brothers went down. Now, the really terrifying thing is the global food system looks very similar and for very similar reasons. Just like in the global financial system, the big food companies have become too big to fail. Um, on one analysis, um, the, uh, the four companies control 90% of the global grain trade. The same companies own a lot of the seed um, trade, the, the chemicals trade, the machinery trade, the packaging trade, the processing trade, the retailing trade. Um, there's been this huge consolidation, both horizontally and vertically, and their behaviour has started to synchronise. At the same time, countries have polarised into super exporters and super importers. And for the sort of major um, uh, agricultural commodities, such as um, maize, rice, wheat, um, and, and soy, we really now depend um, uh, for global imports on just four or five exporters for each of those commodities, of which, for at least a couple, Russia and Ukraine are crucial ones. How has the task of transporting food around the globe beyond our current state of conflict actually contributed to the precariousness of the food system? So we're looking at a system which is innately fragile, but it's made much worse by something that also happened in finance, which is a shift from stocks to flows. Um, as uh, we've moved towards frictionless trade, towards a sort of harmonisation of global trading standards, um, the upgrading of ports and roads. Companies have said, oh, well, we don't need to keep food stocks anymore. We can just keep the whole thing moving um, with a just-in-time delivery system. Um, and, and in good times, that works very well. But if something goes wrong suddenly you've got a massive problem on your hand because the supply chain snaps. I mean, basically, our food reserves are floating on the sea. That, 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 that's, you know, that is where, what our stocks are now. And a great deal of that food trade passes through um, pinch points, such as the Turkish Straits, in trouble at the moment, the Suez Canal, which was in trouble last year when that huge freighter got wedged across it, Gibraltar Straits, the rest of it. Only a couple of those need to get snarled up and suddenly, bang, big problems. And what happens in this system which has lost its resilience, which is highly susceptible, I think, now to collapse, is that as that potential tipping point approaches, 
we see shocks being amplified very quickly through it. And so uh, interruptions in the supply chain, which are very often exacerbated by um, local export bans um, and by financial speculation as well, are scarcely felt by countries like ours, by, by the rich nations with strong currencies. But in the poor nations with weak currencies, who are at the end of the queue, with their weak buying power, um, those shocks are felt very suddenly. And, and as a result, even when the global price is low, the local price can spike. And that's what seems to have been causing hunger, the rising levels of chronic hunger, that around the world we're seeing these price spikes caused by the transmission of shocks through the system, which basically looks like the flickering that precedes the tipping point. You know, the governments were able to bail out the banks because they could um, draw on future money for their bailout. You can't draw on future food to bail out the food system. We largely still see food system crises as a function of agricultural production. Meanwhile, most of us are actually largely dependent on buying our food, so it's actually an economic crisis. That's Laura Pereira, Associate Professor at the Global Change Institute at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. And she also works as a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University in Sweden. I think, at least in South Africa, which is largely where most of my work has been done recently, it was actually the COVID lockdown that spiked a really large realization on how fragile our food system is and how prone to hunger people actually are. So sort of how borderline so many people um, who are sitting at the margins of, of, of income, of uncertainty in terms of where they're going to get their next, um, their next payment in order to go and buy food. So it's not about how much we can actually produce necessarily on our farms. Subsistence agriculture is super important. Household gardens equally are too. But it's actually increasingly becoming an economic problem. And so you're seeing now a, a big discourse, um, rightly so, on the war in Ukraine, Russia, hoarding wheat, being able to um, sort of sell it on to, um, to other countries for, for geopolitical influence, you know, food actually being seen as a political tool. And we are going to see a lot of... Um, a lot of impacts in uh, in that area because we are dependent on trade um, with when it comes to our sort of our main staple grains in particular. Lara makes an interesting point about the impact of the current price mechanism we use and how this contributes to the crisis. It's also interesting that you started to see price shocks even before um, we actually had an access problem, right? And that's also leading. Sort of that stems largely from speculation, right? In futures markets, there's increasingly a lot of work that's been sort of written on um, on how you can hedge bets, right, against um, this potential uh, future loss um, and and sort of start to drive prices up now already. And it's that price mechanism that's actually the critical aspect that we're talking about when we're when we're talking about a food price crisis now. So it's. Less about just the, the mere availability and more about uh, the fact that people just can't afford to buy the main basic staples. And I think that that's the systemic problem that we're really having to fix. If you want a resilient system, it's not just about um, making sure that production is fine, which, which is an important aspect. And particularly under climate, we know that's going to get increasingly hard to do um, to, to actually meet needs. But we currently do produce enough food globally to feed everyone an adequate diet. 
there is of course a history that we need to also think about when we talk about land use in the indian context for instance i mean there is a huge role um, the ipcc's uh, last report that came out actually recognized the colonial history that we also need to keep in mind when we think about impact of climate change that was rajika singh director of sustainable landscapes and restoration at the wri or world resources institute in india Ruchika puts in context how the challenges India is now facing can in part be seen as a result of the green revolution that was put in place to meet the food crisis in the 60s and 70s. In the Indian context, of course, uh, you know, we've had uh, the green revolution, which was fantastic, which helped, you know, uh, which was solving basically problems of a particular time in a way right um, because we were dealing with the issues around food security and uh, those issues were critical if we had to kind of feed the population but in the current context uh, what we basically are facing is implications of that resource intensive agriculture in india you know which is causing agrarian distress there is impact on soil health and agricultural biodiversity is low so george Tell me what you think we need to do to bolster resilience in our food system to ensure it does what it's supposed to do and feed the growing global population. You know what you need to do to make a system resilient is to restore um, some of its spare capacity, its redundancy, in other words, restore its modularity, which means its compartmentalization. So it doesn't all you know the shocks can't flow right through it; they they get stopped and 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 they can't amplify too far to restore its circuit breakers, again, with a similar effect, and to create backup systems, ways of producing the same thing, but in completely different ways. Um, Because how do we restore that resilience to the system? And at the same time, how do we do it without completely trashing another complex system or set of complex systems, which is our Earth systems, um, uh, upon which we are also entirely dependent for our survival? I think there are lots of new ways of doing things, um, lots of ways of restoring that diversity and redundancy to, to the system which we so desperately need, while at the same time protecting our life support systems. Um, and, and the principle behind it, I mean, what we should aim for is a food production which is both low impact, low impact, but high yield. So how do we do that? And I've been looking at what I think are some really exciting ways forward. One of them is a switch from annual grain growing to perennial grain growing. Almost all the grains we eat, whether they're cereals, whether they're beans and pulses, um, whether they're oil seeds, are are produced by um, um, annual crops. Large areas dominated by them are very rare in nature and they generally occur as a result of um, an ecological catastrophe. So to grow our annual crops, we have to create a catastrophe every year. And we have to plough the land or spray the land and destroy all the perennial plants, the longer lasting ones with which they might compete. And we have to really pamper these annual crops. Um, And they're often extremely susceptible to environmental change. Um, They need a lot of water. They, they, They can only survive within a certain temperature range. If we can switch to growing perennial grain crops, we can unlock all sorts of amazing advantages. One of them is that you don't have to plough the land every year because the same plants will keep producing a harvest year after year. Another is that 
Um, you don't have to establish the plants every year. So in principle, at any rate, you'll need much less fertilizer, less herbicide, less pesticide, all the rest of it. Um, and they're likely to be far more climate resilient. Um, and um, in um, Salina, Kansas, a group called the Land Institute has fulfilled a dream which has eluded scientists for the past 100 years. And, and they have managed finally to produce a range of perennial grain crops. And their first one has already been fully commercialized. Um, working with Yunnan University, they've produced um, a perennial rice variety, which has now been harvested six times and still has the same yields as annual rice does. Um, farmers in Yunnan are desperate for the seed because it not only greatly reduces soil erosion, which is a huge problem there, but also greatly reduces the need for labour, which is also a massive problem because the young people have moved to the cities. It ticks so many boxes. There's, there's like loads of reasons why this could be a, a transformative idea. And it also, at the same time, it diversifies the food system. You know, not everyone's going to immediately switch to perennial crops, but you've got something different going on. And we need to bring as many different things going on into the food system as we can. Now, that's really interesting, George. But can you tell us what about our other sources of fresh food? Um, I've been looking at um, fruit and veg as well and following the extraordinary work of a grower called Ian Tolhurst or Tolly, who's actually based here in England. He's anticipated recent developments in soil ecology, which show that fertility is as much a function of soil biology as it is of soil chemistry, um, because plants get their minerals with the help of bacteria and fungi. Um, in fact, they um, really struggle to get minerals without bacteria and fungi and they have a symbiotic relationship with them. And what we're beginning to see is that if we can mediate that relationship between the plants and the microbes, uh, you can greatly reduce or perhaps, as Tolly has done, eliminate the need for fertilizers and manure. And without any fertilizer or manure, across 34 years, he's now raised his production levels to hit the lower bound of what conventional farmers, growers, are producing on good land. It's quite extraordinary. And what he's done is to just tweak that relationship between plants and microbes. And Tolly's real breakthrough was the discovery that if he sprinkled a tiny amount of wood chip onto the green manures that he grows um, underneath and, and between his crops, that seemed to alter that carbon-nitrogen ratio sufficiently, suddenly, to give him a massive yield boost without any fertiliser. I mean, the wood chip isn't a fertiliser, it's an inoculant, which helps to stimulate the, the growth of bacteria and, and fungi. And it, it is an astonishing achievement. He's now maintained those high production levels for 12 years, um, having had rising fertility in production across the whole 34 years he's been there, but he sort of made this breakthrough about 12 years ago. And lots of people are now trying to do what, what he's doing. And it's, it's a sign that actually these new developments in soil ecology, you know, because I mean, what Tolly did in practice years ago, we're just beginning to understand in theory could give us some major breakthroughs in the way that we grow crops. We are all agreed that we need to transform the food system. But isn't it a very difficult challenge to change a system that's been in place for decades, with so many stakeholders, with conflicting viewpoints, and in the middle of a crisis? 
it's something that we need to come to terms with, that transformation is hard. It's difficult, sort of getting away from our business as usual, the status quo is particularly for those of us who are privileged enough to actually have our basic needs being met. Um, you know, why, why would we want to shift away? It's not something easy. So it's also quite often very much at odds with meeting present needs. And so sort of the, that, that chronic response to, to hunger right now, which is extremely necessary, doesn't necessarily allow us the space for longer term um, kind of visioning of what is the future system that we want to build, because there's always going to be um, a moment of tension of disjuncture happening around there. And I, so that's just something to bear in mind when we're having these conversations that that is not easy. <laughs> On the other side, in terms of sort of practical solutions, there there tends to be a dichotomy of viewpoints. You know, it's like global trade is going to save us. As long as we produce enough globally, we'll be able to um, be resilient against climate impacts on production in some areas. We'll be able to source things elsewhere. I think we really saw that um, that trade was not always going to be the answer, particularly under the financial crisis. You saw trade barriers go up in countries like where riots were breaking out around sort of lack of access to food. Does trade still have a role to play? Shouldn't we be therefore trying to eat more locally? We need to look at how the trade regime can help because I think that global aspect is important. There are so many communities around the world who are reliant on exporting their products because, you know, coming from a country where I can really appreciate avocados and mangoes and grapes and, you know, we, we have a really big um, citrus export market in South Africa and having just come back from Latin America where similarly just all of these foods that the rest of the world really wants, you're not going to get rid of trade anytime soon. Um, I'm not going to give up my morning coffee either, even though, <laughs> you know, that's not something that South Africa is producing en masse. So, so that's an important aspect to take into account. Um, so then the, the other, other side to that is we need to sort of go local, eat everything, you know, sort of within a 10 kilometer radius or at least within our country, which which is an important aspect of resilience because that is how sort of you you build resilience against shocks that are happening elsewhere, but not necessarily against shocks that are going to be happening within your local food system. And that's where that need to be able to have access to food from elsewhere is important. Where have you seen the most compelling solutions that strengthen resilience? The main solution space that I've been working in has not been this global versus local debate, has been around diversification, around like how we actually need options. We need to increase the, the, the types of foods that we're actually eating. And this is because it's not just from a pr production perspective in terms of like if you're only growing wheat and that gets knocked out, you're going to have a problem. Um, so there's, there's both the resilience from that perspective, but the way that we grow our food also needs to be diversified. Um, so the kinds of species that we're having, I think everyone is, is pretty familiar at this point that um, we're extremely reliant. I think it's sitting over 70, 80% of our food is actually coming from um, rice, wheat and maize um, and, and now increasingly soybean too. And just a reliance on, on three to four crops is, is clearly not the most resilient of strategies at the planetary level. Um, and then there's dietary diversity. And for me, this is a really important component because Largely, the discourse, particularly around development, has been around meeting, well, it was originally around meeting basic calorie needs, right? And you can meet basic calorie needs just from literally giving someone 
a bowl of rice for meals every single day. Um, and, and yes, you're going to meet your calories, but we know that you're not going to be meeting um, your micronutrient or sort of other, um, even macronutrient, protein, um, etc. Food is so much more than calories and nutrients. It's about culture. It's about experience. It's about coming together and connecting to nature and the earth and you are what you eat and all of these other kinds of discourses. Um, and that often gets lost when we sort of start to come up with these quantitative indicators of oh, we're doing badly, we're not doing so well. And I think that if we're going to be aiming for an aspirational future food system, that it shouldn't be about just meeting people's basic needs, which is, of course, extremely important, but also to take into account the cultural components. And, and so how can we do better? And, and for me, that is going back to, to the lost crops, to the crops that were actually kind of sidelined as famine foods, for example. There's so many narratives around that. For example, cassava, um, which isn't indigenous to, to Africa, but is, is very much a part of um, the staple foods in, in Western and, and Central Africa in particular, um, because it is extremely resilient and you can do a lot of things with it. Um, sorghum and millet. So in South Africa, the, the production and cons- the production and the consumption of sorghum has just declined over the past 20 years. And yet it's an extremely nutritious grain, as versatile as as maize is, um, with with maybe some other nutritional benefits. Uh, And you can do all sorts of interesting things with it. So I don't work largely with farmers, um, even though there are a lot of important sort of regenerative agriculture and agroecological processes that work with diversity, that sort of move against this monoculture aspect. Um, but it's also about those of us who don't grow things but consume, sort of what, what are the markets for these kinds of foods? Um, and, and to work with chefs increasingly, so thinking around um, eco-gastronomy and trying to move it away from this elite notion that it's only for people who can pay, but actually saying, no, that culture and food are connected and we're, we're all cooks at the end of the day. Um, and, but we do need the skills, we do need that knowledge to be able to, to make use of the diversity that nature offers us um, in terms of in terms of the plate, and that's that's where I think a lot of the really interesting work um, can um, can start to happen around opening up alternatives for for where a food system can be nudged. How does nutrition act as a driver to change the food system, and what are the other factors we need to consider? One of the things that we look at very closely in terms of when we are thinking about, you know, informing India's transition, as I was saying, to a sustainable food and land use system, uh, one of the things to look at is how do we also attain nutritional security? So in some sense, you know, we, India has food security. I mean, not in, of course, all the different uh, components, some of these seedals, et cetera, right? And, uh, but uh, the larger challenge for us has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, undernutrition. I mean, we have really high rates when it comes to undernourishment as well. We also face a dilemma where there's, you know, obesity in urban areas, which, but, uh, you know, undernutrition in a lot of uh, communities. And, uh, you know, how do we think about planning for um, sustainable regenerative agricultural practices, which can also diversify the food plate if I can say that, which basically would mean, and that's where a sort of transformation in the agriculture practice itself is needed, right? So, I mean, one is about how do we sort of, uh, you know, have shorter supply chains? How do we plan for food production? Uh, diversify from, I mean, you know, historically, we used to also grow a lot of cereals and, you know, uh, uh, millets, etc. sorry, millets, etc. But now there is a lot more focus on wheat and rice. Uh, so how do we sort of think about 
changing some of this becomes important. And this is also important from a climate change perspective. And this came out very clearly in the IPCC report uh, and also in one of the, I think, the IFRI report which came out recently because there is going to be much more vulnerability and, uh, you know, risk with climate that's going to emerge. With, I mean, we're going through a heat wave right now in India. Uh, Delhi is, I think, 46 or 47 today. So basically the question that arises is, you know, this will impact our agricultural production. This is going to impact how, you know, rice produce. I mean, we we would have to think about uh, planning uh, much more sustainable region practices. And that's what I think in Madhya Pradesh, what we are trying to do is, you know, work with the state government to see what that change could potentially look like. And this also requires a bit more, I mean, one is, of course, focus on the production systems. But when we think about the, you know, food systems, it's the entire, uh, you know, uh, chain that you look at, need to look at, right? So from the distribution, consumption, how, and the, uh, you know, behavioral issues that uh, come along with it. Uh, and here, one of the barriers also, I mean, to improve nutritional security eventually would be is why we, we, you know, we are consumed, uh, one is we change the production system, but also we also how do we reduce food loss and waste? Because we are, you know, we're spending so much, in, and when I say just not in terms of economic terms, but also different input costs, etc. When we are producing food, but then a lot of that food get, eventually gets lost when it's uh, you know from farm gate to the plate, and uh, eventually, I mean, in the you know if it's food waste, then also from retail household level, etc. So how do we sort of plan for? Not that some of the food that we are, you know, growing with so much of effort doesn't really, uh, loss doesn't happen. What are the interventions that governments should be making, in your opinion? One of the very simple interventions, which um, actually didn't come from a scientific paper, it didn't come from any high-level policymaker, it came from the woman who runs my local food bank. And she said, look, I can't for the life of me understand why we don't subsidise vegetables and fruit at the point of sale. And suddenly it hit me, well, of course, that's so obvious. That That is so obviously part of what the solution needs to be. And at the moment, worldwide, we spend half a trillion dollars on farm subsidies, right? Almost all of them are regressive and environmentally destructive. The lion's share of those subsidies by a very long way is taken by the richest farmers and landowners. And hardly any of these subsidies have any environmental component at all. When they do, it's often actually has perverse effects like pillar two of the European Union's um, common agricultural policy, which I think now does more harm than good. It also um, has almost no beneficial impact on the price of food. But you know, so let's redeploy these subsidies. This would be a very simple, straightforward thing we could do, partly to pay farmers to restore ecosystems in places where we see what I consider pointless destruction, in other words, very large areas of land cleared to produce very little food. But secondly, um, as, as part of a package to subsidise the price of healthy food. So the producers, the, the, the horticulturalists and others, still get paid a decent price for producing those fruit and veg, but the consumers pay less than, than, than the producers get paid because government intervention comes in between them and subsidises the, the price of fruit and veg at the point of sale. And that would make a really huge difference, I think, to global nutrition. How can governments, policymakers and investors play their part? So I think the first important 
aspect to put out is is around political economy. And as you were seeing this kind of consolidation around specific um, species, we've also seen a consolidation around corporates and companies who are basically in control of the food system. You can sort of like go down to sort of the, the main ABCD um, grain traders, for example. Um, and so I think government and finance in particular needs to take that into account, that if you're going to be supporting um, consolidation, you're not opening up diversity and that's going to be impacting your resilience, number one. Um, so... So can we look at alternative, um, potentially much more marginalized food system actors, people doing things on the edge, people doing things that are working in particular contexts, um, but that don't necessarily have to scale up. And this is going to be my main message, um, I think, just for um, for finance, for, for government, um, who are always looking for the big return on investment. You know, what is it that we're getting? How are we scaling up this intervention? Uh, I mean, Joseph Stiglitz back in the day wrote um, about economic um, development programs that the cookie cutter approach doesn't work. You can't take this here and put it there. You know, just replicating scaling up is not is not actually going to be an effective solution. That's how we got to the problem in the first instance, was pretending that everyone could eat the same thing everywhere. But to look for other ways of scaling impact. And we, we've spoken quite a bit um, within the Resilience Centre. Michelle Moore led a paper um, that talked about scaling deep. So it's about the principles of engagement. So what is it that we're actually trying to scale? We're trying to scale connections between people, connections between people and land um, and, and the, or, or the ocean where we're actually getting so much of our food from, um, connection to cultures and to history and to place and all of those other things that I think um, that's what we want to be scaling. Uh, it's not just the, the profits or the get bigger or the, the model that needs to just be replicated. And so to look for things that if it works in place, that's amazing and that's okay and we can support it and we can find something else that works in a different place because they are going to be those actors, those entrepreneurs who are, who are wanting to, um, to experiment and to do something differently. That's my main message is to stop looking for these massive returns, this like huge impact and we're going to save the millions of, of hungry people. It's like, no, let's just get it right in one place and hopefully that'll be a much longer term, more resilient solution. Um, and, and then to put, put the money and the backing and the support, the enabling conditions, right, to actually allow people who are really doing good things to continue to thrive in the work that they're doing because I think people are a lot more innovative. Um, on the ground than we give them credit for. So this sounds amazing. Get it right, focus on one area, and do the right thing. So let's dig in. What challenges do entrepreneurs working in land use, food systems, and restoration face in India? So one of the challenges that we've seen with the restoration businesses, I mean, these are basically entrepreneurs who are working on restoring farms and forests in India, has been that, you know, how do you sort of... Uh, See, I mean, uh, that the, these companies get the right kind of capital support, whether it's in terms of equity, you know, venture fund, whatever it might be, different, different kind of financial models, right? But they get the right support. And uh, with the land isolator, what we've learned is uh, 
that in the initial lot of these industry at least in the indian context and we know that this is true for the global context as well because we run the land accelerator in the african and uh, latin american context as well there is a you know most of these entrepreneurs are really in early stages and what these entrepreneurs need is support in terms of financial capital impact fund so that they can reach the next stage and you know we can really create those Uh, create what I like calling a restoration economy, which will help in you know restoring land, but we're also sort of enhancing income and livelihood. So it becomes like a self-sustaining cycle. Uh, in the Indian context, with the restoration land accelerator cohort that we've seen, and this is one of the gaps that we've been seeing now. There is a lot more interest from impact invest uh, funds, etc. Uh, in the land sector, but it's not the same as you see for the energy sector, for instance. I mean, much more matured uh, area, right? So that's been one of the issues that we've seen, and yes, much more is needed. So requires slightly different kind of thinking. We've been starting to already. So one of the things that we've been trying to also do is how do we sort of bring more uh, sort of finance to implementers on the ground. So we launched the Terra Fund in Africa. WRI had launched uh, in Africa uh, you know, at, uh, at the last COP. And um, so that's one way to see, you know, how do you create these uh, technical finance facility in a way? How do you sort of create the right kind of uh, mobilized funds which can uh, come to implementers on the ground? So we hope to do, uh, bring something like that in the Indian context as well at some point. So, I mean, uh, much needed basically. How does the issue of land use impact discussions of food systems? Land use, I think, should be seen as almost the number one environmental issue. Um, We think about climate, we think about pollution, but actually the sheer quantity of land we use determines um, uh, the extent to which ecosystems survive or fail. Because all the land that we use for extractive industries is land that we can't use for forests and for wetlands and for savannas and for the other crucial ecosystems on which most of the world's species depend. Um, And by far and away, the greatest use um, of land by humans is for farming. And by far and away, the greatest use within farming is for grazing livestock. Over over two-thirds of all farmland is used for grazing livestock. 28% of the world's entire land surface is used for grazing livestock. And yet that produces from grazing alone just 1% of our protein. This is a phenomenally profligate way of producing our food. So I've heard people say that we need to eat less but better quality meat. Is that right from your perspective? There's a sort of gastroporn elitism which has developed, which I see as a really, really dangerous trend. And and this is exemplified by the fetishization of, of pasture fed beef. You know, we should we should switch away from from these ugly intensively farmed meats and switch towards pasture fed beef and that's going to solve our problems. Well, um I think there's no more damaging farm product than organic pasture-fed beef. And the reason for that is the sheer quantity of, of land that it requires, but also the massive amount of greenhouse gases it produces. But And people say, oh, yeah, but we're going to, you know, it's, it's got, you're going to uh, have this shift alongside people eating a lot less of it. It would have less and better meat. And you say, well, if that's the case, it's going to be phenomenally expensive, you know, if that's where we're going to get meat from. So the very rich will continue to eat just as much meat as they eat today and nobody else is going to have meat. So this isn't a solution to anything. I mean, it's incredibly environmentally damaging. It's also socially grossly 
unjust and yet it's become like a mantra less and better pasture fed meat you know this is it's it could not be worse so george what is the solution to this I think the most important of all environmental technologies has turned up just as we need it most, which is precision fermentation. By breeding microbes through basically refined brewing could, with a tiny environmental footprint, absolutely minuscule by comparison to the way we do it now, provide all the world's protein and fat. It's a viable technology, it's now up and running, um, it's pretty well ready to be fully commercialised. The big danger is that corporations capture it and you know, we, we have to fight corporate intellectual property rights right across the board. You know, they, they are one of the most dangerous forces on earth today and it doesn't matter whether it's an established industry or whether it's a new industry like this and so we need to get in there at the beginning and say this has got to be an open source technology because if it is every town could have its own little brewery run by a local business producing food for 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 for, for the benefit of local people if not it could be yet another string um, to add to the bow of these massive corporations which have already mopped up the global grain trade and the meat trade and the rest of it and that we cannot afford Precision fermentation powered by solar sounds like an incredible opportunity for the future of protein, and interested listeners can find links to this in our show notes. Our next guest's company, Eat Just Incorporated, is a food technology company taking an alternative approach to protein production. Let's hear from him now. I grew up eating a whole lot of chicken in Birmingham, Alabama, southern barbecues, and I was lucky enough to have a best friend who also co-founded the company with me. That's Josh Tetrick, co-founder and CEO of Eat Just Inc. One of their innovations is Good Meat, a company that produces chicken protein without tearing down a rainforest or taking a life. It was always prodding me to pay a little bit more attention to what I'm having for, for dinner. Um, and then I'm 42 today, about, uh, about five, six years ago, we decided that there's a different approach to making meat that could really meet people where they are, which is to say people tend to like real meat, but people also, all things being equal, I do think want to do the right thing. Um, and, and good meat is a way of making real meat without the need to slaughter an animal without the need to tear down our rainforest, without the need to use antibiotics. Um, and instead of needing billions of animals or the 80 billion chickens that are on the planet today, we start with a cell. And then from that single cell, you can make billions of pounds of meat. That's incredible. Could you explain a little bit about the tech behind the product for our listeners who, like me, might be wondering how this process actually works? Yeah, well, so think about how, how chicken, beef, and pork is made today. So I'll, I'll use chicken as an example. You've got these 80 billion chickens. And these 80 billion chickens often kept in warehouses where they're packed together. And they're eating all the time, a lot of soy and corn. And that soy and corn requires a lot of land. And about a third of our ice-free land today is dedicated to chicken feed and feed for cows and feed for pigs. So we literally say that a biodiverse rainforest should be bulldozed to plant feed to, for chickens to eat. So they typically eat for about 45 days and they're slaughtered and chopped up into chicken wings and, and chicken bites. What we do is to say, we wanna give you the end product, 
but made in an entirely better, kinder, uh, more climate-friendly way. So we start with a cell, and we can get that cell from an egg. We can get it from a fresh piece of meat. We can get it from a cell bank. And then once we have a cell, we then identify nutrients for that cell to consume. So think about the soy and corn that a chicken's eating. Vitamins and minerals are going to the chicken's body and fat and muscle are growing on the bones of the chicken. Well, we don't have the live animal, but we still need the nutrients. So we identify a similar set of nutrients for the cell, and that's called cell line development. And then we take that process of the cell and how the cell is consuming that nutrients, and then we integrate it into a large production vessel. The technical term is called a bioreactor, but uh, visually it looks like what you would see in a brewery. Uh, and then that cell is growing in this vessel. It's doubling, it's doubling, it's doubling, it's doubling. Um, and then after about two weeks, you have your raw chicken. And then we take that raw chicken and then we can make it into a chicken bite or a chicken breast, or whatever kind of chicken we want to make. And the end product tastes like chicken because it is chicken. So if you had a chicken allergy and you ate it, you would have an allergic outbreak. Um, but it's without any violence at all. Um, it's free of all the microbiological issues of salmonella and E. coli. The United Nations Environmental Program said the number one driver of zoonotic disease is the increasing demand for animal production. So it's a little to no risk of zoonotic disease. Um, analysis says that it's about 90% um, uh, less carbon intensive than the conventional way of doing things. But it's still real meat. And... Um, you know, our, our feeling is that, uh, you know, we're living in a world where people do generally, I think, want to do the right thing, but often that runs right up against tradition, runs right up against habit, runs right up against identity and convenience. And if we can figure out a way to make good people do the thing that's a little bit more right by giving them real animal flesh without all these negative impacts then that's what we're going to spend our days working on. Wow. 90% less carbon is phenomenal. So you're able to sell your product in Singapore, but could you talk a little bit about the market there and also how it's being received by consumers and food producers? Yes, yeah, so Singapore in, um, in November of 2020 approved this kind of meat for sale. And it's called cultured, or we call it cultivated meat. But the simple way to think about it, it's real meat without the need to slaughter an animal. So it was approved in November 2020. Then we went on to sell it in December 2020. And we invited five young people that were real change makers in their community to be the first ever to, to buy it and to, to eat it. Um, and then we've been selling ever since. For the past year and a half, we've sold um, in all sorts of dish, chicken dumplings and chicken curry and chicken on a stick and chicken on top of salads um, at local street vendors and high-end restaurants and fancy hotels. Um, and the most common reaction we get is, um, this tastes like chicken. Um, and, um, the other reactions that we get are, you know, I feel good about eating this. Um, I don't feel like I'm making any kind of sacrifice when I eat this. We hear from young people. So when I tell young people that it's made in a giant stainless steel vessel, they think it's awesome. Um, they think it's really cool that you can make meat in a giant stainless steel vessel. So we, you know, um, 
innovation doesn't have to be off-putting in this way. It can be, it can be really exhilarating and exciting. Um, we, we, you know, talk to people a lot when we, when we share this with people about, you know, what does it look like if we, if we get this right? What, what, what does our, um, what does our planet look like if we figured out a way not to slaughter an animal again? And it means there'll be more forests. It means there'll be less acidification in the oceans. It means we don't have to, you know, harm another living thing. So, um, now to skeptics, um, out there, uh, even in Singapore, the most effective way to turn someone from this sounds really strange and I don't think it's something I want to take part in is to get them um, in front of a plate of chicken, put a fork in their right hand and just ask them to eat it. And what we found is when that happens, all of a sudden, kind of all the skepticism drips away once you're three bites in a chicken curry and they say, you know what? I think I could get behind this. Amazing. How do you see this impacting food security and resilience longer term? Well, you know, by any measure, our, our food system, our way of consuming meat has not given us a resilient food system. It is accelerating avian flu and other zoonotic disease. It is accelerating climate change. It, um, it is accelerating food security issues. And at the heart of it, is that when you have billions of people who want meat, it means you need billions of animals. And when you have billions of animals, then you need to feed those animals an enormous amount of grain, an enormous amount of soy and corn. And all of that soy and corn and all that grain is not going to you and me and people that we care about. It's going to chickens in a factory farm or cows in a feedlot or pigs in a gestation crate animals that are living miserable lives who were feeding for them to then go through a process. So then 45 days or two years later, we slaughter them. If someone, if we tasked a committee to design a resilient food system and we had a hundred ideas, our current food system would not make the list of a hundred ideas. This is the kind of food system that you would design to create the least resilient food system. When you start with a cell as opposed to a live animal, you don't need all that land. You don't need billions of animals. You don't need all that stuff that, that goes into it. Um, and it means countries like Singapore, which I'm, I'm, um, I'm in right now, um, can build their own food security. You can make meat without hundreds, hundreds of millions of acres of land. And I think that's why Singapore is taking such a leadership in this. China, just a couple months ago, um, integrated this idea of making meat free of slaughter into their five-year agricultural plan, which is a really significant step that China took. Um, U.S. regulators are beginning to pay a lot more attention to it. Um, and, you know, I encourage people who are listening to this, imagine there's been a lot of talk recently about, you know, what does it look like for us to be a multi-planetary species? Just imagine that we were colonizing another planet. No one would ever suggest that we use a third of that planet to plant soy and corn for animals that these new residents of the planet might want to eat. We, of course, would think differently about it. We would have new and more thoughtful approaches to enjoying chicken and beef in the, in the pork that we, we want. Um, and we think, um, we think this is one of them. We agree. 
So how can you see this rolling out at scale? What are the enabling conditions that you need for this to really go global? And how can people with different cultural needs relating to food engage with your product? What we want is um, in the decades ahead that the vast majority of meat doesn't require directing bulldozers to knock down biodiverse rainforests. doesn't require the slaughter of an animal. That's the world that we want to live in. And to get there, we need to do a few things. And other companies also need to do a few things. One is we need to make more meat. So we're selling in Singapore, but it's not enough. So we just announced we're building the largest cultivated meat facility in Asia right here in Singapore. Um, we announced a couple of weeks ago that we're building a large-scale facility in the United States. We need hundreds, we need thousands of these facilities making real meat without the need to slaughter an animal all over the world. Two is you need more capital to flow in the sector. You need capital away from conventional to this new approach. Three is you need forward-thinking regulators like um, those here in Singapore who are not just regulating for today, but are regulating for a food system that we want 30, 40, 50 years from now. Fourth is... Um, you need a cultural shift and making chicken and beef and pork in this way isn't just about how it tastes. It's not just about the texture. It's not just about the cost. It's about how it makes me feel. Like even to this day, as much as I know about the issues with chicken production, when I think of chicken, I think about my mom's chicken wing recipe that I used to eat when I got off the bus when I was like 10 years old in Alabama. And I have really fond memories of that. Um, I don't think about all the issues of climate change when I think about my mom's chicken wing recipe. And food is more than a smartphone device. It is identity and is heritage. And it is your mom, your grandma's recipe. And figuring out a way to acknowledge that and to work with chefs to make that real is, is so critical. And probably the best example of how we've done that in Singapore, um, there's a, a street vendor named Mr. Luz. And Mr. Luz has been in business for 60 years. He didn't speak a word of English. He's fluent Mandarin, doesn't speak any English. And um, we, we approached Mr. Luz and said, you know, we see a long line outside your uh, hawker stand every day. What would it be like if you use this chicken instead of conventional chicken? Um, and he was up for it. And he put it on his menu. Um, and it normalized it. It created this combination of tradition and new that when you get it right can be really can be really special. Um, and we need, you know, we need hundreds of thousands of Mr. Lou's all over the place to help that really, um, really be seen by people. What we've done in Singapore, the, and what Singapore has done, first country to ever approve it, uh, the only place in the world that you can buy it, is really important to acknowledge, but it's just not nearly enough. Um, and there's a young woman um, named Kia who came to our very first dinner. And um, she asked me a question, and it wasn't about, she wasn't there to compliment and say how nice a chicken tastes and congratulations. She just looked at me directly and said, how can we use this technology to help animals and the planet faster? 
And I just met Kia again to celebrate the groundbreaking. And I was showing her where this 6,000 liter vessel to make real meat without slaughter was going to be placed in the facility. Um, and she didn't say, oh, that's a great thing. Congratulations, Josh. She said, well, when are you guys going to scale so we can have this in retail? And her mindset is what I think we need more of. Um, we can't, we both can't live in despair, but we can't be content with you know, some of these small changes either. We have to, we have to take Kia's energy um, and keep pushing to make more, keep pushing to, pushing to do it at a much larger scale. And that's what we're going to do. Thank you, Josh. And thank you to all of our experts that we've interviewed on this show. Let's get back to Christiana. An extraordinary group of people and so many diverse opinions there. And clearly there's a revolution in both food production, the potential new ways of producing food, and also in experts analyzing the food system and the challenges we face. The key point here is how much land it's going to liberate. But I mean, to me, the meta point here is that we've got these different phases in climate change, industrial technology, renewable energy, smart grids, electric vehicles, but now food. But this is a kind of very personal revolution. We are kind of what we eat. But I also think it's great that this is touching upon the animal cruelty issue, which we often underestimate the significance of uh, when, we're, when we're eating animals. But what did you think, Christiana? Well... I hate to sound like a broken record, but I, I go back to the way I think about this in two parallel tracks. The one is how do we produce grain, fruits, and vegetables? Um, and mm. how do we produce them without degrading soils? Where do we produce them? How do we distribute them? How can we be efficient so that we're not wasting food either in transport or, or in farms, transport, or uh, in stores and the whole the whole chain, and we understand from these conversations that this is not about returning to the Middle Ages in which everybody was producing right there locally. This is really about understanding that we have to go global about this, both global, global, yes. Go meaning we have to do a lot of food production locally, but also keep in mind the global needs so that we ensure that everyone has the access to grain, fruit, and vegetables at the prices, at the prices mm -hmm. that are um, that are fair and are accessible. Um, and then the other the other piece, the other track that is there is, Proteins, because that to me is a completely separate issue. How do we produce proteins without animals? Because it is such a roundabout way of getting protein. And how we yeah. got into that, right? Well, we, we can go into evolution um, about that, but we don't we don't need to do that anymore. To think that the only way to get protein is to grow and kill animals in a, grow animals in a most inefficient way and then kill animals in a much inhumane way. And that both of those are necessary for us to get our protein. We can really, you know, be ready to let go of that myth. Hmm. No, I mean, it's, it's true that, for example, the reason why electric vehicles are replacing petrol vehicles is because it's just a better engine. 
Well, another one of these revolutionary pillars of the decarbonization of our world and the evolution of our species and a healthier, happier future, I think, in store for us when we get this right. For both us and the planet. Because we are one. Isn't that right, Christiana? All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us this week. We look forward to seeing you next week. And from us, it's bye for now. Bye. Bye. 